0: Since the 1970s, playwright, screenwriter, director, and author David Mamet has been writing comedies and dramas in which the art of the con, the abuse of power, and the search for truth is as much a subject as the cadence of speech and a quality of character. Raised in Chicago, David Mamet has collaborated with New York professionals in theater and film for over 40 years beginning in 1976 with his off-Broadway debut of a trio of plays, The Duck Variations, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, and American Buffalo. In 1984, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his play, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I spoke with his longtime collaborators, motion picture editor Barbara Tulliver, sound editor Maurice Shell, and re-recording mixer Michael Berry, to talk about working with David Mamet in film and television.
1: I mean, I think that he has created a particular rhythm it's like a musical rhythm.
2: Yeah, it's like a staccato kind of, and when you hear it, you realize this is how we talk. Yeah,
1: you know, sometimes I actually overhear people, how they speak, and I'm like, this exactly sounds like a yeah. mammoth play <laughs> or a mammoth film.
3: He likes truth, I think, is what it comes down to. He, that's what I find in all his work, is yeah, him trying to get to the truth.
0: I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, introducing you to the most influential and respected film and television professionals working in New York today as a celebration of New York's ongoing contribution to the global film community. Frame by Frame is co-presented by the Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. You can share this conversation through our website, bit.do slash frame by frame, or via Twitter at @PostNY. The host for today's episode is Sync Sound. Frame by Frame is expanding to include short interviews spotlighting up-and-coming New York-based post professionals talking about their collaborations with bold new filmmakers in snapshot conversations called New York Minute. Listen for upcoming mini-episodes inserted within the larger podcast soon. We welcome your suggestions for people and projects. Write to us at framebyframe at postnewyork.org. Motion picture editor Barbara Tulliver has collaborated with David Mamet for over 30 years, beginning with her apprenticeship with editor Trudy Shipp on his film House of Games. Her additional credits include work with directors Paul Thomas Anderson, M. Night Shyamalan, and Julie Taymor. She was joined by frequent collaborators sound editor Maurice Shell and re-recording mixer Michael Barry. Barbara began the conversation by talking about how she first began working with Mamet.
1: We're all in New York because that's where we were, in the New York film community. I have been working as an, an apprentice and an assistant for Trudy ship on David's first two films, House of Games and Things Change. When she couldn't do Homicide, David asked Trudy if I was ready to be cutting, and I was petrified and very scared, but I was... I was ready, and she said so, and uh, David asked me, and Michael Hausman, who was the producer, you know, approved me, and that's how I ended up working on Homicide. But I had spent so much time in the cutting room with David for two Films and on the set, because we went on location with him on House of Games Seattle, and things change in Lake Tahoe, so... I had a relationship with him because in those days, the assistant was in the cutting room with the editor
0: the You're whole entire time. time.
1: Mm-hmm. So we were on film, and so I was constantly with David as well as with Trudy, and I was part and parcel of them you know, asking my opinion and having a voice in that cutting room.
0: One of the most prolific contemporary dramatists, David Mamet, at the time of this recording, had written and produced 38 plays, 33 screenplays, and 18 books, both novels and nonfiction. David Mamet's first produced screenplay was the 1981 production of The Postman Always Rings Twice, directed by Bob Rafelson. He received an Academy Award nomination one year later for his screenplay, The Verdict, directed by Sidney Lumet. He developed a friendship with both directors, and Barbara Tulliver describes how he and Sydney began working together.
1: It's actually a great story that David once told me about the verdict, where um, he had written the screenplay for the studio, and the studio wasn't crazy about it and wasn't going to do it. And he was really upset, and he sent the screenplay to Sydney to read. And it turned out that they may fire the director, and they hired Sydney. And uh, David called him up. And, you know, he said, you know, I, I'm really upset, you know, I wrote this really great script that I thought for the studio, and oh, they didn't like it, yada, yada, yada. And Cindy said, well, you know, I'm going to be the director of The Verdict, and, in fact, the film that I'm making is this script, and it was David's script. So he loved it, and he wanted to do it. He just said, this is a great script. We're doing the script, you know, which it's is really it. great. That's great. That's yeah. a great
2: story.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. But I think that, you know... He, What prompted David to eventually direct the screenplays that he wrote, and I think it's still this way, that oftentimes writers are put into a terrible position when they write a screenplay, they often say that screenwriters can be like the lowest person on the totem pole. They're oftentimes asked to do revisions and to change things, and if they don't do it, the the studio or, you know, the director will just find somebody else to do it. So you're kind of almost forced to be either making changes that you don't want to do as a screenwriter or having somebody else botch it maybe even more, you know? So I think that David decided, I'll just direct my own screenplays so that I'm not going to have to change it if I don't feel like I want to.
0: Sound editor Maurice Shell, whose credits include work with Sidney Lumet, Arthur Penn, Francis Ford Coppola, Bob Fosse, Jonathan Demi. Brian De Palma, and Spike Lee, has worked on multiple films with David Mamet. Maurice describes the approach to sound effects in a Mamet film, which is typically dialogue-driven.
2: The effects were not... They weren't secondary, but they were beyond secondary. (laughs) He was very clear about what he wanted, you know? And a lot of it had to do with dialogue, because he was really... It's all about dialogue with him. So if there was any changes... It wasn't about some sound effect I made. It had to do with the dialogue. You know, either he'll replace the line or add a line or...
1: No, that's true. I mean, because it's rhythmical, if he's in the mix, he might feel like there's a line and then there should be something like a, "Mm mm-hmm and then the next line, and so somebody will go in the booth and go, mm, you know, whatever. I mean, so he does a lot of AGR, but it's not to change performance, it's, it's additional dialogue that right. he'll put in, that he feels like rhythmically something needs mm-hmm. to be there when he's seen the finished right. product, right. or getting to the finished product. Some of it stays and some of it goes, some of it doesn't sound as right when he gets to the mix, and some of it, it does. So, so. no
0: improvisation.
1: Oh, uh, no. <laughs> it's not impro- no. It's not improvisation. He's worked really hard at writing something that's really brilliant. And it's like sort of someone, you know, saying, oh, okay, I'll just play some Mozart and I'll improvise somewhere in the middle of it, you know. It's that's, just a good, not, ex- that's a good analogy. Not, it, is, um, it is a, it is a good expression. analogy. It just seems so, well, why would you do that, you know? I mean, you can, I'm sure, but why? I think David feels like when he writes something, if the actress just will come in and read (laughs) what he has written, you know, if he's, you know, he's created a particular rhythm. It's like a musical rhythm. It's how he he hears the world, which I think is actually very much how the world actually does sound when you listen to it. I mean, people do talk this way. People interrupt each other. People don't finish their sentences. People have these pauses, and then they start again. It's... It is how people talk, and I think he's got it down pretty well. Um, so I think that that's part of the distinction you know the distinctive musicality of his dialogue
2: in terms of the sound, let's say I don't recall what film, but it was always like having to not overdo with the sound because you have to let the time and the space that he provided with his dialogue, even though there's a lot of dialogue, uh, to play out so that it would have an effect. So you, you wouldn't, you can't, like, just interfere with that. And I think he made that clear all the time.
1: He um, he's a really fast writer. I mean, we've all seen him, like, when he's in an AGR session or at the mix or something, and he just writes something, several lines. Bing. Bing. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> And it's perfect. Yeah, he's really yeah.
2: Religious. I mean, in the mix, you know, like mean, that's it, because he's thinking. Oh, you know, it's.
1: But you know, the other thing that I want to say about Maurice is, and David, in terms of sound, there, there were periodically David does want a particular sound. You know, he kind of has says, "I want this to be the highlight of," you know, "I want this to be the sound that people will remember or, or something." And Maurice was really great at being able to, you know, at the beginning of Homicide, all these. SWAT team comes in to, you know, police are going to come in to raid this drug dealer. And it's all very quiet, and um, they unscrew a, a light in the hallway. And I'll always remember, like, the first time I heard that sound <laughs> in the mix and just going, oh, my God, that is such a great light. It just was so unique and so different and so eerie and so, and it was like, and but so subtle. And it was like those kind of, like, small things that you remember sound-wise is what you know, David cares about, you know, in terms of sound effects. You know, he doesn't, he wants to hear, like, very specific, but he's not, you know, he doesn't want to hear stuff that has nothing right. to do it's with the it's story. It's usually
3: in the script or mm-hmm. fits the story.
1: Right, right, exactly. That's going to, in yeah. some way, help you That's tell right. that story. Yeah.
3: He is all about the words. I agree with that, Maurice. Mm-hmm. And mixing dialogue for him is really special and educational. <laughs>
0: Re-recording mixer Michael Berry, whose credits include work with Robert Altman, Spike Lee, Woody Allen, Julie Taymor, the Coen brothers, Robert Benton, Milos Forman, Todd Solentz, Jonathan Demme, and Martin Scorsese, has worked steadily with David Mamet over several film and television projects.
3: As a mixer, I come in so late in the process right. that all the timing and issues are, are sort of ironed out. Uh-huh. And thanks to barbara and maurice but barbara's with the director from day one assembling it getting all the ideas ironed out putting in sound effects putting you know all all the things even if they're temporary things that lead to the arc of the story and the Mm -hmm. sound design and all that stuff so by the time david gets there it wouldn't be shocking (laughs) it would just be you know embellished and, and finessed and
1: And what's really wonderful about the whole way of working with David is he works a lot with the same people from each show to each show. And I think we were able to create that to some degree in post-production because I tried to use the same people Mm. that he was familiar with, that he knew, like Maurice and like Michael. Mm. And they had crews that they oftentimes were the same people, and we kind of worked in the same places, which was mostly sound one. So it really felt like that whole idea of a theater family was continued in the film world.
2: You know, I know this is maybe the... He never used his power. And that's very important in a working situation. You don't feel uptight, you know. Sometimes it gets very tense. Mm. And he was very respectful.
1: You know, when I was on Homicide, um, there was this one scene that I always thought was too... I thought it was just too long. And so one night, I said, before he left, I said, you know, I think this scene's kind of long. Can I try to cut it? And he said, yeah, go right ahead. So I worked hours and hours into the night, and I cut it, and I thought it came looked pretty good. And in the morning, I showed him the scene, and he goes, wow, that's really great. He goes, but, you know, I kind of missed this one line. And I said, no problem, I'll put that line back. And then I showed it to him, and he said... I kind of missed this other line. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> I said, okay, well, no problem. I can put that's that, that so back good. easy, you know, and put this. He goes, that's great, but, you know, now that I'm looking at it, I kind of miss that next line. So this went on, and finally, you know, I showed it to him, and, they, and he said, it's terrific. And I said, David, it's exactly how it was last night. And he goes, I know, you did such a great job. Oh. <laughs> you know? And it was like a way to kind of not make me feel like, oh my God, I just spent X amount of hours in the evening. you know. And
3: yeah, it, might, it might have but, been helpful to him, too, to see the scene deconstructed again yeah. and then rebuilt true. again. So yeah. was, yeah. you, know, you, no you gave exact, him that opportunity. I yeah. know that he yeah. he
1: felt like he was right about keeping yeah. that whole thing <laughs> <laughs> away. <laughs> you know, we have, we, it's not like David and I don't have our disagreements, but we know each other. This chase well enough, I pretty much will know, you know, in the old days, as they used to say, we used to watch dailies together, you know, and I think we tried to do that pretty much close to almost the end, you know, of, in terms of being able to have that hour or whatever it is, time, or half an hour or two hours of time at, evening with the, end, at the end of the day with the director to get his feelings, get his thoughts, look at the footage together is... I mean, I'm Red Belt, I used to go down to the set, which was, like, a kind of a big schlep from The Cutting Room, but it was really important for him that we watched these things together, which really helped me to learn, like, what he was looking for. What we agreed in terms of the performances, what takes we thought were the best, and by the end, I think we always tended to agree, most of the time. And sometimes, you know, how he thought the scene should be cut, but sometimes when there were choices, you know, he wasn't sure and he would allow me to make that decision and then, you know, we could flush it out in the cutting room if it needed to be changed. But it was great because I had his input and I sort of knew what he was thinking
0: about. After so many years of collaboration with David Mamet, motion picture editor Barbara Tulliver describes a natural rhythm and a shorthand while working in the edit suite. Here she describes their process.
1: Well, the way we work is when he finishes shooting a couple of days later, or when it was a film, maybe it was more like a week later. I'd have you know the first cut together, the editor's cut, and we would screen it together. We watch it all the way through, and it's always hard for any director the first time they see <laughs> yeah. their their work all the way through. But he was always very generous, and he gave copious notes. We talked about it. You know, we would do like a certain portion, like maybe one reel, and then he would come back the next day. I would show him the changes. He would either say yes or no. We would go through it again, and then we just kept moving forward. So I had a certain amount of autonomy that I didn't have somebody behind me 24-7, but also loved when he was there because I loved being and hanging out with him Mm -hmm. and spending time with him. But again, he's doing a million other things. Like, he's also writing his next project, he's thinking about something else. I mean, he's devoting the majority of his time to the project, but he doesn't have to be sitting there while I painstakingly make changes on everything, you know. Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. For a long time he lived in Boston, and we actually did a lot of cutting in Boston hmm. until his director's cut was finished, and then we'd come back to New York. Because Boston didn't really have the same facilities, both for sound, nor were they willing to put up a whole crew from New York. So this was the logical place to come, as opposed to Los Angeles.
3: But he moved to L.A. just before Red Belt?
1: I think maybe Spartan. Well, he moved to Los Angeles, and um, luckily we were able to eventually convince Michael to come to Los Angeles.
3: We did Phil Spector out there. Mm
1: -hmm. And that was great for David. I mean, David, I think, you know, if he clicks with somebody and I think he really loves that camaraderie and that spirit and that friendship, it means a lot, as it does to me, as to most people. Like the, You know, that you understand that the people that you're working with are there to tell your story.
2: And, I, and, I, and he was very respectful, and I respected him a lot. I mean, I thought he was a very uh, serious thinker. And, you know, very appreciative.
1: Very. Yeah.
2: Always gentleman. thank you. Gentleman. I like what you did. Oh, or, you know, oh, he, always.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, he he never left the, the cutting room or the mix without thanking everybody Shaking profusely. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, and the same thing on the set. You know, he would thank everybody at the end of the day. He knew everybody's names on the set from, like, the PA to, you know, mm-hmm. whoever it was. He was really grateful mm-hmm. that people were working as hard as they were mm-hmm. to do their jobs, and he was letting you know that he understands what you do and how fortunate he is that he has the privilege to be able to work with all the people that he worked with. Mm-hmm. And um, it made people want to work yeah, yeah. harder Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, that's true. yeah very you know. generous.
2: I mean, for instance, he picked up on every little thing, you know, like uh, at the end of a film, twice it happened. I got this gift, you know. I didn't. I didn't know. It. it was like I had talked about some movies that I liked, but at the end of it, I got a package of all these films.
1: Hmm.
2: Another time on uh, Spanish Prisoner, I think
1: mm-hmm. there's that poster. Yeah, that World War II poster. You know, there poster. was a big poster. Mm-hmm. I said,
2: "Boy, I love that. It's so fantastic." You know, I did. It was a
1: poster I, that was on the. Set. You just, said it. Yeah, just it was-
2: said it. I just said it. I just said it. And at the end of the production, when we were done. I got this nice I mean, it was a smaller version of it. I thought, how did he get? You know, it was wonderful. So, you know, he just he didn't have to do that, you know, because mm-hmm. that that which shows how much he appreciated absolutely the, your work or your. He showed it. You know, it wasn't just talk. You know, not that the gift is what I wanted, but you know what I mean.
1: That whole below the line and above the line and all that stuff, it doesn't play the same way with David. He gives the same courtesy to the you know to the teamster as he does to the set to the star. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I've never witnessed that. That's yeah. That's amazing. You know what they say in uh, old Chinese? He's a mensch. Yeah. A very
1: talented one.
0: Very talented one. David Mamet has drawn from his life experience in creating some of his most memorable characters. Barbara Tulliver describes the inspiration behind some of his plays and films.
1: You know, David takes certain experiences in his life and yeah. finds inspiration in those things. And when he wrote Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross, he had worked in the bo- a boiler room, you know, or when American Buffalo, he hung around poker games with, like, a right. lot of, like, crooks and <laughs> yeah, thieves yeah, yeah. and stuff like that that were just complete con artists.
2: He also had a connection with police. I think one of his uh, uncles was a police officer, right. a detective or something. And he used it in the films as well. It was, it was a, you know, something yeah. that he
0: yeah.
2: utilized as part of the story, you know? And uh, so it did come from his background, too, you know?
1: I mean, I think Homicide is such an interesting film because it is somebody who's a Jewish cop and trying to find a way to belong. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's kind of tackled so many different things from the con guys, the, you know, the thriller kind of aspect of things. But then he's also done The Winslow Boy, and it was really so smart how he took that Terrence Radigan playing reworked it and it's now like one of my favorite movies of david's well that's the other thing about david's films is that everybody walks around quoting their moments of particular dialogue because he's so brilliant and uh, you know house of games i don't know how many times people said you're a bad pony i'm not going to bet on you same thing with winslow boy you just kind of find these lines that are just so incredible and David and I still always talk, you know, when you we mean, talk, you banter, we always right? go back and yeah. forth and we just, yeah. just say, I say mammoth lines all the time, you know. It's kind of like, that's the way we talk to each other a lot of the time.
3: You know, <laughs> uh, Just one little anecdote that I recalled when we were doing, I think it was Winslow Boy, and it was while Bill Clinton was in the White House and oh during God. Monica Lewinsky right. and he, Clinton sent bombers over to Afghanistan and David wanted to watch it, so we put it on the big screen. And as soon as the bombs were dropped. He stood up and he said something like, "That, you know, sob, whatever stronger <laughs> words than that, stole my script because it was wag the dog." Yeah, yeah. Which was
1: already being which was already being cut. And yeah, I like right. that, yeah. Right. So he's very he's kind of you know, it's interesting how David kind of it's almost like he's a little bit of a, a fortune teller or something or like yes. a seer, you know, because uh, Oleana's is the same thing. There was Oleana, and then yes. there was the Clarence yes. Thomas hearings.
0: Mamet's 1992 play Oleana, addressing the subject of sexual harassment, stirred up so much controversy and animus that it often provoked post-play fistfights between audience members. Barbara recalls the initial response to the film.
1: Oleana was a really provocative play and movie. I mean, it's, it's one of the most produced plays, I think, in the world. You know, people felt that David was taking the side of the professor, but I don't think he was taking any side. I think Mm -hmm. it was about power and what happens when you have power, and then when most of his
3: storylines are about
1: right. You know, and and then what happens when that power changes hands, and it just depends on everyone has a different point of view. You know,
3: he's a very he likes truth. I think is what it comes down to. He likes the truth, and I think all that's what I find in all his work is yeah him trying to get to the truth.
1: You know, I was lucky enough to go a lot to screenings when we had the film... And afterwards, there was Q&As, and so often, like, Sarah Green went out, who was the producer of that, I went out, um, and, you know, we screened it, and then we did these Q&As, and people were, like, so heated in these discussions about who's right, who's wrong. It was all about right and wrong, and it was really interesting that he got people talking in this particular way about what this all means. We
3: need his voice now. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: know. Exactly. (laughs)
0: coming up in theater, Mamet learned to cure a play over time based on consistencies in an audience's response. Barbara Tulliver describes how they work in anticipation of an audience for a film.
1: It's a, it's a tough, it's very tough because when you the audience will tell you immediately in theater this does not work.
0: Did you, you know? have
3: previews? I don't recall a preview period. We didn't
1: do previews. We, yeah. What we did is we had audience friends and family. We had uh, we, yeah, uh, or sometimes we had it people invite other people and yeah. stuff and um a story that I always love is when we were screening Spanish Prisoner, and this is the time when um, we run film, and we had uh, two tracks because mm. you used to have a, a second track that would have some sound effect, your sound effects and some you know some other few cues or whatever if you couldn't fit it into the A track, and there were screening rooms that accommodated that, and so our post production supervisor. supervisor. She booked your screening room, and when we got to the screening, she said, Oh, my God, I've made this terrible mistake. There's only room for one track to run. So I went, Oh, my God. So I like went into my head, and I thought, Okay, what's on the B track that's necessary to tell the story? And then I ran back to the Brill Building. I used somebody's cutting room, and then I kind of took whatever I thought would be— whatever I could to just throw it onto the A track— but basically, all the sound effects were going to be not there. So then I ran back to the screening room, and David arrives, and I said, okay, I've got some bad news. And so I told him, and, you know, it's the kind of thing for an editor, you know, you are so petrified to tell that to a director. <laughs> it just is, like, so scary. And he started laughing. And <laughs> I said, oh, my God. And, every you know, we used to always make the rough—he always made a rough cut speech before he had, we had a screening of and so I said, so you might have to say something about this in the speech that you make in the beginning, you know, about rough cut. Of a, and there's, he goes, I've got it. I've got this handled. So we had a full-packed audience, and he got up, and he, and he welcomed everybody. And he said, you know, most people think that sound is very important in a film, but we don't. So there's no sound effects. <laughs> so there you go. So we started screening the film, and I was like dreading the moment, like because there was going to be uh, a ringing of the phone, and somebody's going to pick up the phone, and uh, and there's going to be nothing there. And I just, I just like slumped down in my chair. And we always sat together at screenings, and uh, all of a sudden I hear s- someone go ring, 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 and I look over, and it's David, and I went, oh my god, oh my god. And he—he like made—he <laughs> he made all the sound effects for the entire film. Like even like this, there was this one point that was to go into a certain room. There was like this this really big sound effect of and I hear and and then he returned to me and goes, "You want to do the next sound effect?" I said, "No, no, <laughs> you can do." It. And this is how the whole entire screening went. And it was a really great screening. I mean, it, it was great. a really terrific, you know. But it's the kind of way that he understood this. Like, I've been in screenings where something goes wrong, and the director literally has, like, you would thought that Mm. we had missed the cure for cancer, you know. (laughs) And I understand these are really important, and every screening is important, and, you know, Mm. you really put all your energy into it. I completely, I'm the first one to understand (laughs) it. But there is a point where there's a line that Mm -hmm. you have to kind of make, and he makes it very clearly, like, okay, well, this is what we've got. What are we going to do with it? (laughs) And, um... And that is kind of the way I think David rolls when there's, and, which is why when there are things that happen and things don't go the way, whether it's on set or in the cutting room, really quickly mm-hmm. and find a different way to approach it mm-hmm. because he's so smart. <laughs> yeah. You know, we once screened uh, State in Maine. It was the first screening, and it was a filled audience of you know friends and family, and nobody left. And Dave and I just looked at each other and went, Oh
3: my god. <laughs> what have <laughing>. we done? <laughs> nobody's
1: laughing. And then we went back to the cutting room and then we did very small timing issues hmm. on each of these kind of things. And we had a second screening and people were laughing uproariously. Funny, you know, it? so it, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, we never had previews with numbers or things. Because that was the other thing with David, he had final cut. And I know there are a lot of people that live by those previews and have... Oh, that's the world that's that exists the
3: worst. now. Oh, my God. <laughs> and
1: have, like, a whole... That, that's, uh, a, that's
3: everything now, though. It's, it's, forget about it.
1: Well, David says two things about previews, which I think are really interesting. One is, he says, if the pro preview process worked, there'd only be good movies. <laughs> which is true. And the second thing he said is, the only real gauge of how a film is is when people are engaged in it, like when people are watching the movie. But once you give a person a piece of paper and a pen and say, here, I give you the power to judge me, mm. you're not getting a real reaction. Now you're getting something else. I've right. often
3: wondered about that because I've been to many previews and sometimes the audience is extremely engaged. Yes. So I'm saying, oh, this is going to be great. And you right. get the cards back and it's not good. Exactly. And I'm like, wait, there's a disconnect. So that makes sense to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And speaking to David's confidence, at the end of Phil Spector, HBO, was allowed to come and, and listen to the mix and give notes, which, which wasn't typical for him, I guess, because it, it was HBO. He had to. So he was very gracious. He entertained this, and they watched the whole thing, and this is the head of HBO, and then they had notes at the end. So David graciously said, Thank you very much, I'll take your notes, and then pushed them out. Okay, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, he knows what works
1: because not only is, is he decisive and is smart, was probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, but he accepts the responsibility of what final cut is. As he mm-hmm. always says, the two most beautiful words in the English yeah. language are a yeah. final cut. Yeah. He accepts that responsibility to say, I'm staying with this decision. This is the best way to do this.
3: <laughs> and we went on to get nominated for an Emmy. So. Yeah, that's good. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> David knew what he had already, and he trust, and he trusted
0: Frame by Frame is produced by Isabel Cederny and Ben Baker. The sound engineer was Tony Pipitone. The sound mixer for this episode is Kieran Kay. Frame by Frame is also made possible because of the talents of Post-New York Alliance members Rachel Wynn, Joanna Garland, and Sarah Pachter. Music credits include selections from the score for Wag the Dog by Mark Knopfler and from the score for Glengarry Glen Ross by James Newton Howard. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Frame by Frame with Post Producers Jess Levin and Margaret Bodie.